This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. The Soundtrack Show will begin in five, four, three. Ghostbusters is a fascinating musical study, not just because of the great score by Elmer Bernstein, but how that score is combined with a memorable song score. This is The Soundtrack Show. Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and in this episode, we're continuing our look and listen to the music of Ghostbusters. A Columbia Pictures film from 1984, directed by Ivan Reitman, with a film score by Elmer Bernstein, and a song score by a collection of artists from Arista Records, many of which are featured prominently in the film. In the last episode, we focused entirely on Bernstein's orchestral score. And we'll continue to talk about that today. But we have to talk about the most famous music to come out of this movie. And certainly, the most famous song to have ever come from the Ghostbusters franchise. I'm of course referring to Ray Parker Jr.'s anthem, Ghostbusters. A smash hit number one single and music video that accompanied the release of the film. Let's go ahead and chat about this tune right now. Parker Jr. was approached by the film's producers to write a tune for Ghostbusters, and he thought, initially, that it was an impossible task. How do you write a tune with the lyric, Ghostbusters? I mean, what do you rhyme with Ghostbusters? However, he saw a local television commercial late at night that was cheaply made for a local service, and it inspired him to write the tune as a jingle for a TV ad, spawning the catchphrase, who you gonna call, as well as, I ain't afraid of no ghosts. The song was a huge hit and an even bigger music video. 
Directed by Ivan Reitman, the music video featured cameos by not only Ray Parker Jr. and the four Ghostbusters, in full Ghostbusters gear, dancing in the middle of Times Square in Manhattan, but also featured celebrities all singing the Ghostbusters line in the video, including Chevy Chase, Irene Cara, John Candy, Melissa Gilbert, Ollie E. Brown, Jeffrey Tambor, George Wendt, Al Franken, Danny DeVito, Carly Simon, Peter Falk, and Terry Garr. The song was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song at the 57th Academy Awards and was number one on the Billboard Hot 100 for three weeks in the summer of 1984. Now, this is a great tune. It's a memorable tune. It's a tune from my childhood. And it's really, really cleverly done and really cleverly written. I want to circle back to something I said in the last episode. I was comparing Ghostbusters to a score that we looked at several episodes back. <laughs> yes, back. Back to the Future. I mentioned that there were similarities and differences between the music of Back to the Future and that of Ghostbusters. First, a similarity. Both movies spawned a number one single, The Power of Love in 1985 by Huey Lewis and the News for Back to the Future, and of course, Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. the year before, in 1984. But the similarities between Ray Parker Jr. and Huey Lewis and the News don't end there. Huey Lewis claimed, in a lawsuit filed against Ray Parker Jr., that the theme song to Ghostbusters in 1984, again, this is before Back to the Future, but Huey Lewis was involved, he claimed that the theme song to Ghostbusters was a lift of his chart-topping tune from the album Sports, the smash album Sports from 1984, I Want a New Drug, which topped at number six on the Billboard Top 100. Now, the story goes that Huey Lewis thought that this was a direct lift of his song, mainly because the Huey Lewis in the news camp was riding the crest of a huge media wave that had them touring nonstop in 84. And during this wave, they had been approached to write a theme song to Ghostbusters and declined. So, when Huey Lewis heard a song that had a very similar bass line and groove, the lawsuit was filed. Let's listen to I Want a New Drug by Huey Lewis in the News and take a listen to the chord structure. Both songs kind of feature that one to flat seven to four kind of thing. That kind of thing. And Huey Lewis in the news, of course, just a, a, in a different key. They even both have a similar walk up. Here's Ghostbusters. Versus Huey Lewis. have the same chord progression, meaning not just the same chords, but the actual succession of chords, one to flat seven to four, wash, rinse, and repeat. And they also both have the same harmonic rhythm, meaning the timing of the chord progression is totally identical. 
In common time, or 4-4 four, four time, meaning four beats to a measure, one, two, three, four. The first two beats are on the one chord, like this, one, two, and the last two beats play the flat seven and four, respectively. Flat seven, four, one and two, and flat seven, four, and one and two, and flat seven, four, with a little walk. Dum, dum, dicka, dum, dum, dum. Those are similar. But certainly the lyrics and the melody are different. Still, it's hard not to notice those similarities. In 1995, the lawsuit was finally settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Nobody heard a word about it. That is, until Huey Lewis gave an interview in 2001 for VH1's popular series, Behind the Music. As a result of his Behind the Music interview, Ray Parker Jr. countersued Huey Lewis for breaking a confidentiality agreement. According to MTV News on March 23, 2001, quote, the settlement agreement Lewis and Parker reached for that lawsuit in 1995 banned them from revealing any information that was not included in a press release they jointly issued at the time. The press release stated that the matter had been amicably resolved. Parker's lawsuit quotes Lewis, born Hugh Craig, saying on Behind the Music, quote, The offensive part was not so much that Ray Parker Jr. had ripped this song off. It was kind of symbolic of an industry that wants something. They wanted our wave and they wanted to buy it. It's not for sale. In the end, I suppose they were right. I suppose it was for sale because basically they bought it. That money that was paid to resolve the lawsuit was protected by the confidentiality agreement, Parker claims. End quote. We don't know what happened next, and it sounds like it's for good reason. Anyway, let's let the sleeping demonic dogs lie, and let's get back to the good stuff, the music. Regardless of its origins or similarities to other tunes, Ray Parker Jr.'s song, Ghostbusters, provides tremendous energy and pop sensibility to Ghostbusters, and really lifts it to another plane of blockbuster existence. Including a pop tune as sort of this anthem for Ghostbusters was a really smart choice by the producers and director Ivan Reitman. It really is kind of like a, a branding stamp that is just pure fun that plays throughout the movie. And clearly, it worked. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to the soundtrack show. So now, let's get back to some other similarities and differences between the films Ghostbusters and Back to the Future. Ironically, I'd like to compare the Ghostbusters theme song to Huey Lewis's The Power of Love in terms of function within each respective film. Both songs are actual song score, meaning that they aren't source music. They aren't songs that exist in the world of Ghostbusters that the Ghostbusters themselves can hear. In fact, most of the songs in Ghostbusters are true song score. And this is where these films are very different. In Back to the Future, for example, our characters are hearing Earth Angel, Johnny B. Good, Mr. Sandman, etc. But they're not necessarily hearing the film's number one single, The Power of Love. So Back to the Future, out of all of its songs, has maybe one that is song score. And when it comes to Ghostbusters, almost no song that is in that film soundtrack is actually heard by our characters. With maybe the exception of the Thompson Twins, In the Name of Love, over Chinese food at the firehouse. To our first customer. To our first and only customer. I'm gonna to need to draw some petty cash. I should take her out to dinner. We don't wanna lose her. Uh, this magnificent feast here represents the last of the petty cash. Okay, slow down. Chew your food. 
In fact, there's even one spot in the movie Ghostbusters that would have been perfect for a source cue that our characters heard. And that's when Ray and Winston are driving back at night from a ghost-catching gig, talking about revelations and the end of the world, and decide to change the subject and lighten the mood by turning on the radio. Now, ironically, this pop opportunity is covered not by a song from the soundtrack, but by composer Elmer Bernstein. That's right. This pseudo-reggae pop tune in the style of The Police is penned by Bernstein, and is part of his score. Judgment Day. Judgment Day. Every ancient religion has its own myth about the end of the world. Myth? Ray, has it ever occurred to you that maybe the reason we've been so busy lately is because the dead have been rising from the grave? How about a little music? Yeah. Listen to how it transitions into the next scene. Here, let's take a listen in isolation. So overall, when talking about the pop music in Ghostbusters, we have to talk about its overall function. With few exceptions, it is truly a song score, and not source music coming from the world that our characters inhabit. Okay, let's take for example the aforementioned title song Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. The first time we hear it, it accompanies a giant title card that introduces the movie. By the way, Ghostbusters back in 1984, like Star Wars a few years earlier, featured a rare departure from the movie norm of the time of having opening credits. There are no film credits other than the main title at the beginning of Ghostbusters. If there's something strange in the neighborhood, who you gonna call? Something weird and it don't look good. Who you gonna call? We're just catapulted into the story with the upbeat kinetic energy of the movie's giant pop hit after having a good scare in the library in the prologue. It promises us that even though the movie features ghosts and other spooky elements, really, we're just in for a fun summer movie ride. That tune really pays off, by the way, later in the film, when the Ghostbusters finally hit their stride. The tune serves a role that is somewhat like a music video in the middle of the film, a montage of the Ghostbusters' success as they travel around New York City catching ghosts and becoming famous. Thank you. Hope we can help you again. Coming through one time, five, Good morning, I'm Roger Grimsby. Today, the entire eastern seaboard is alive with talk of incidents of paranormal activity. Alleged ghost sightings and related supernatural occurrences have been reported across the entire tri-state area. 
Well, everybody has heard ghost stories around the campfire. Heck, my grandma used to spin yarns about a spectral locomotive that would rocket past the farm where she grew up. But now, as if some unforeseen authority... There's something strange in your neighborhood. Who you gonna call? Again, tremendous musical energy. We'll hear this a lot in the film. Pop music giving us a jolt of energy to help move the film along. Another great example is a tune that is used more than once. A song called Cleaning Up the Town by The Bus Boys, a tune based in 12-bar blues that features a Chicago-style piano riff and a backbeat and horn section straight out of the big band era. We first hear a music-only version of this early on in the film when our heroes, before they're officially Ghostbusters, go running out of the New York Public Library. Do exactly as I say. Get ready. Ready? Get her! Get her. That was your whole plan. Get her. Again, an upbeat, fun antidote to another big scare in the movie. In fact, it comes right on the heels of one of the most frightening ghosts in the entire movie, neutralizing the image and telling us, you know, this is all in good fun. The tune shows up again a little while later in the film when the Ghostbusters, who are all out of petty cash, eating that aforementioned Chinese food, listening to the Thompson Twins on the radio, finally get a real customer and they go rushing out of the firehouse. This is the first time we see them spring into action and actually get to pack on the gear, drive the converted ambulance slash hearse, and go on a real call. This tune is pure fun, and again, provides a huge jolt of energy into the movie. With a film so successful, and with a soundtrack so successful, the positive contributions that these songs make to the overall tone, pacing, and energy of the film would be very hard to argue against. They really, really work. But what about how they work 
with Elmer Bernstein's score. How do you mesh these two together? And when and how are those decisions made? Well, this is a bit of a fascinating balancing act, and the fully released Bernstein soundtrack album in 2006 gives us a fascinating look at what could have been. Because believe it or not, Bernstein wrote a ton of music for the film that was left unused. In the last episode, we talked about the main orchestral theme for Ghostbusters and how it really struck a balance between spooky and comedic elements. And yet, these two pieces that I'm about to play for you, could they be more different? These two pieces work together in the final product really well. That's because some tough decisions had to be made. Let's go back to that first time we hear the Ghostbusters song at the top of the movie. Here's some scary music by Bernstein as the poor librarian is running through the library scared out of her mind. Then finally the ghost catches up to her and we're propelled forward by the pop tune. which fades out in the halls of the university where we meet Venkman for the first time. Well, before that song, Ghostbusters, was going to be cut in, Bernstein originally did this. Scary music, chasing, chasing, chasing. Then finally a huge chord as she sees the ghost. And then, this was Bernstein's take on the main title of Ghostbusters. That really is a different feel than the pop tune. And as much as I adore the Bernstein score, it doesn't have nearly the blockbuster pop energy that Ivan Reitman ultimately went for. Fascinating that even though Bernstein used a theme that we're completely familiar with, had Reitman used this over the main title card, I would argue that it would have been a very different movie altogether. Even Bernstein, when asked about his feelings about having his music replaced by Ray Parker Jr., had the good sense to say, quote, It's very hard to argue when the song is up in the top ten. End quote. Now, let's chat again about the Busboys tune that we played earlier, Cleaning Up the Town. As I mentioned, we first hear it when our characters go running out of the New York library at the top of the movie. Get But before that song was cut in, Elmer Bernstein had originally written this. (laughs) 
again, very different. But you can hear that he also spotted that section with some frantic musical energy. What's ironic is that in a way, and this is just my opinion, the piano-driven busboys tune somehow feels more cohesive with Bernstein's score than what Bernstein wrote. That piano just really kind of ties the room together, man. Bernstein also wrote music for the second appearance of Cleaning Up the Town, that busboys tune. But this time, it featured the Ghostbusters theme that he penned in a more major, fanfarish setting, as our characters are finally experiencing some success. Starts with a brass fanfare, very much like Stripes to me. Here's our main theme as a heroic trumpet fanfare. Again, I think this would have been a very different movie. There is one spot in the movie where his music was replaced by a pop tune, however, that Elmer Bernstein didn't fully agree with, according to the liner notes of the Beresi Saraband 2006 release. After the containment grid is shut down by Walter Peck and the EPA in the film, and all of the ghosts are released and flood through the streets and skyscrapers of Manhattan, that sequence is set to a song by Arista Records artist Mick Smiley and his tune, Magic. Now, if I were to play this tune for you, you wouldn't recognize it right away. This is from Ghostbusters? I don't I don't recognize this. Oh yes indeed it is. Here, let's fast forward a bit. Okay, here's the chorus. Okay. I still don't recognize this from the movie. Well, let's move on to this cool, spooky groove that this song features in the middle. Ah, there it is. Let's hear this in the context of the film.
Bernstein reportedly didn't love this choice. Let's listen to what Elmer Bernstein wrote for this section, and then we'll discuss it. different, and more like the other spooky orchestral music that he wrote for this film. And in very 50s in its style, that classic throwback that features just a hint of camp. But man, this piece is dramatic and huge, and honestly sounds like a real showstopper of a piece in the heart of Bernstein's score. He must have loved this cue. I mean, how do I know? I, I just know that it sounds like a ton of work and a huge bombastic piece that had I written this score, would have anchored this score in my mind as the moment that I was working up to, the moment that served as one of maybe just a small handful of creative stakes that I had placed, a marker for where the haunting transition cues that we played in the last episode would circle around. And it was totally cut, completely cut from the film. So I'm dying to know, what do you think? Do you like this direction or do you like what's in the film? Let me know on social media at Soundtrack Show HSW on Facebook or Instagram or at Soundtrack HSW on Twitter or via email at the Soundtrack Show at HowStuffWorks.com because I'll be honest with you, while I feel that the other pieces in the film were better served with the pop songs, I'm so curious to know if this would have really played up the kind of zaniness of that section of the film. Slimer eating hot dogs, zombie cab drivers, ghosts diving in and out of sewers. I remember even as a kid in the theater, loving the dread that this pop groove inspired, but wondering who was saying, please, 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 and, and why, why were they saying that? But I suppose that that's like wondering why they're saying, oh yeah, in Ferris Bueller's day off. We just kind of accept it and we move on. No matter what we think of it, I just think it's really fun to speculate on the creative discussions that went into these decisions and to wonder how we all would have reacted to the film had the music gone in the direction that it almost did with Bernstein's cues. The Soundtrack Show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. 
There's another great song that's on both the soundtrack album and in the movie, featured prominently, and that is this synth rock anthem called Saving the Day by Alessi Brothers. kicks in at the right dramatic moment in this minor groove with a very earnest rock vocal, letting us know that the stakes are high. And I love this kind of syncopated 16th note groove of this thing, you know, bum, bum, a one-y and a two-y and a three-y and a four-y and bum, 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 I love that. Ultimately, I think that the song score of Ghostbusters is a vital part of the overall Ghostbusters experience. And when combined with Bernstein's score, we really have the best of both early 80s worlds here when it comes to music. And when the movie reaches its real dramatic climax, it's Bernstein's score that truly takes over before handing it back to the pop music for the closing credits. For example, When our heroes decide to risk their fates and cross the streams of their particle accelerator proton packs, we hear a reprise of Bernstein's Ghostbusters theme as underscore, followed by dramatic chords as they take action. Excuse me, Egon. You said crossing the streams was bad. Cross the streams. You're going to endanger us. You're going to endanger our client, the nice lady who paid us in advance before she became a dog. Not necessarily. There's definitely a very slim chance we'll survive. I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Let's do it. This job is definitely not worth 11.5 a year. Hurry! See you on the other side, Ray. Then, after the final battle and the dust has settled, Vankman and crew find Dana trapped inside the charcoal remains of the demon dog that had possessed her earlier in the film. And as they are reunited with Dana, we, of course, hear Dana's theme. Look! Go check on that little guy. (sighs) 
What happened? And this is wonderfully followed up by the Ghostbusters theme as Rick Moranis asks Dan Aykroyd, who are you guys? Oh, hi. You alright? Boy, the superintendent's gonna be pissed. Are you okay? Who are you guys? We're the Ghostbusters. Who does your taxes? You know, Mr. Tully, you are a most fortunate individual. I know. You have been a participant in the biggest interdimensional cross-rip since the Tunguska Blast of 1909. Felt great. We'd like to get a sample of your brain tissue. Okay. Then a big, brassy finish. I love this town! <laughs> and the Ray Parker Jr. smash hit takes over. Our heroes are successful. They've saved the day, as the Alessi Brothers tune promised. And we are lifted out of our seats by friendly, upbeat music as the credits roll. Now that's a summer blockbuster. Ghostbusters is, as I mentioned at the very top, a fascinating study, as it successfully combines a patchwork of pop tunes as song score with a new film score by a legendary film composer. Some music was sacrificed, but it's hard to argue with the musical end result. I want to close with an email that I received from Martha, who, by the way, said some really nice things about the show. Thank you for that, Martha. I'm so glad you enjoy it. I want to point out that she asked a very important question. Quote, I would love to know what kinds of references you use for your research. I've heard you mention many film commentaries and companion books, but are there any specific resources you draw from for your overall understanding of movie music and history? It can be so difficult to find good interviews with composers or music historians who concentrate on film music, end quote. Thank you for your thoughtful email, and I want to answer your question about research as best as I can. While I try to incorporate sources into the actual episodes when I quote them, it varies from episode to episode. Yes, there's the internet, it does take me down this wonderful rabbit hole of links and Wikipedia source pages and interviews and YouTube interview clips. But I have to say, a huge source does come from physical media. I'll give you a, a huge example. Soundtrack liner notes. The official releases of soundtracks. The special edition releases years later. I find the essays and notes written for these releases to be a treasure trove of direct information, oftentimes straight from the composer or filmmaker. Another huge source for me, of course, are books on the subject. When I was studying Korngold or Steiner, I had their biographies. I had to find them and hunt them out and see if I could find used copies because oftentimes they're very expensive. Um, I had John Williams' film music by Emilio Odesino, great book. It's shocking that it's the only book uh, written about John Williams' film music, and Emilio's a great guy. I have a book on rejected film scores. I've got course books that I find on Amazon. Uh, I've got books on the history of film scoring and on the silent film era, and books on classic Hollywood, and books that I have for my own college music studies. And lastly, I'm a special features junkie. I love watching documentaries on the making of movies almost as much as the movies themselves. Ever since DVDs started coming out, well, even Laserdiscs before that, 
I would listen to commentaries and exhaust the special features sections of every DVD, Blu-ray, or 4K that I could find, and I still do that. I have a family member, by the way, who listens to the show and says, thanks for curating all of those special features I don't have time to watch. Hey, that's what I'm here for. That's what this podcast is all about, but with a focus on the music. If anyone ever has any questions about specific sources on specific episodes, please don't hesitate to reach out via email or social media. I love this stuff, as I know you all do, and I have a great time keeping the creative and historical conversations going. Until next time, I'm David W. Collins, and this is The Soundtrack Show. Thank you. <laughs>